Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses this morning. And I wanted to start off with this question, and the question is simply this. When was the last time you thought about heaven or things that are eternal? Was it today? You're like, Lord, help me to sustain myself before I collapse as I'm fasting. I don't know if you've gone through things in your life where you begin to really actually start thinking about heaven and eternity. I would say this for many of us in this room. We haven't thought about eternity. The only time we think about eternity when things are very difficult, when we want to try to get rid of the pain or when we don't want to face some of the things that we have to face. And that's when we start thinking about heaven, and that's when we start thinking about, I want to get away from this world. But I want to challenge us because I believe that each one of us, we are made for eternity in our hearts. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes says. In chapter 3, verse 11, let me read it. It says this, He has planted eternity in the human heart. So that means that each one of you and myself included, every single person in this world, whether they're believers or not, that God, as we're made in his image, he has put and placed and planted eternity in our hearts. I think for some of us, it's really hard to believe in eternity because in many ways it's a very abstract thought. We are bound by time. Therefore, we only see ourselves as the time... The clock is ticking, and as we get older, we realize what is going to happen to us. So I want to challenge us as we think about this concept of eternity, that we cannot be so consumed with the here and now, but we have to at least give some thought for the future. And I think one of the best ways to even understand abstract thought is to hear from children. That's the beautiful thing about children is that they tell you things that seem almost childlike and very naive in some ways, but something about it is very refreshing. I want to show you this quick video of questions that their parents were asking their kids about who's God, uh, the universe, and I want you to listen to some of their responses, and you could probably tell that it's going to be a little bit hilarious, some of their responses, but remember, they're little kids, and so they're going to give a response. And let's just listen to some of the response of things that are sometimes abstract and difficult for us to understand, such things as eternity. So let's watch this together. (laughs) Too bad for them. (laughs) Once again, childlike heart trying to explain abstract concepts, like who is God? Who made the universe? Or what is the universe? And what's going to happen to us when we die? And my question, once again, is when was the last time you thought about eternity? How would you explain that to someone, the concept of eternity or forever? The reason why we're starting this series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we titled it Eternity because I believe if you listen to the heart of the book, it really comes down to what your faith or belief is 
on this concept of eternity. That in this world, we live only for the here and now. It's about the instantaneous. It's about what we can get at this very moment. But that will not help you when you face difficulties in your life. That will not help you when you're struggling to really see if what you're doing is going to amount to anything. That's why if you look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, there's a lot of themes that are written in that book that Paul writes. But one thing is always pointing towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. There will come a time when Jesus Christ will come back in any moment. And therefore, how we live our lives right now will help us and dictate how we view eternity. At the same time, when you think about that, as some of us are going through some struggles and difficulties, your view of eternity will help you to either have hope or you will end up in hopelessness. It will also motivate you when you think about discipleship. Why in the world should we try to become more like Christ? When I see people who are not believers and they're living their lives very well, what is motivating us to live in holiness and not do certain things that the world might do? Once again, it's rooted in your view of eternity and what will happen to you after this life. I'm praying that this book, as we study this together, will see the importance of the second coming of Christ which could happen at any moment, and that that will motivate us to live our lives with the eternity in mind. I want to also give us just a threefold reasons why we want to cover a book in the Bible. Some of you have heard this many times, and I'm, I'm going to keep on sharing this because I see this in a lot of my counseling. Uh, I spend time, a good chunk of my time, half of my time, not only preparing and um, reading and doing th different things to prepare and to prepare Bible studies and all this, but a good chunk of my time is used for counseling people. And in many ways, when I'm counseling, I begin to dissect and understand what so many of us, even in our church, and even the people that I might meet randomly when I have conversations, I realize why so many of us struggle. And that's why I believe it's so important that we study the scriptures, the word of God. Not only is it the living word, but it has the power to transform us. The first reason why we want to cover a book in the Bible is that I really want to increase our Bible literacy. We have become a generation that does not know Scripture. More and more. In this instantaneous Instagram and TikTok and all these social medias, our theology is formed by social media. And I'm amazed when I sit down with some of us, that some of your thought process and some of the things that you conclude is really not influenced by Scripture, but it's influenced by the world. And a lot of it is because you do not have Bible literacy. Some of us have yet to read through the whole Bible. I've been talking with different people, and they've been a Christian for three years, five years, six years. And when I asked them, have you read through the Bible, the whole Bible, and they said no. To me, if this is the Word of God and it can transform your life, this is how you get to know God, then I believe that that should be one of the commitments that we make, that we're going to read through the Bible at least once before we pass away. So I want to increase the Bible literacy in our church. 
Now, it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to challenge us as I'm preaching every single Sunday that hopefully you will see through the Word of God why it's important to understand His Word. The second reason why I want to do this is because it's connected to the first reason. It's because we want to improve our biblical thinking. It's amazing how we come to some of the conclusions that we come to in life about ourselves, about who God is, about what God is doing, about other people. And once again, it is not guided through Scripture. When you talk to other people, we struggle with different issues, and guess what happens? We're constantly wrestling with the truth. I'm constantly amazed at how many of us believe in deceitful lies of the evil one. So many of us struggle with unbelief. That's why we keep on staying at the same place without any change. For, and you could have been a Christian for literally 10 years, and there is no change. Because a lot of the things come through our mind. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, what, by transformed by the renewing of our mind. So I'm praying that as we go over 1 Thessalonians, that we will begin to improve our biblical thinking so that we can make decisions and step out in faith and do things that Scripture tells us. So that's the second reason. The third reason is simply this, that I want to go over this book because I want us to start investing our lives into discipleship. This whole book, it really is a book on discipleship. And I'll explain a little bit why, and you will understand this. Because we've been talking about how we want to continue to increase in our likeness and growing and becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is all about, becoming more of a follower or disciple of Jesus Christ. And I believe that every single one of us, not only do we need to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you and I have to disciple other people to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So these three reasons, I'm praying that as we go over the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to go all the way up to Easter, that it will give us a little bit of stronger biblical mindset, it will help us to really have that biblical literacy, and then we can grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ through discipleship. And so let me go ahead and just give us some background on this book. I know sometimes when we go over sermons, it might seem more like a lecture style, but I want to make sure that we understand the basics of this book. So that when we begin to look into it and look at verse by verse and phrase by phrase, word by word, that God can speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to give us a background and I'm going to talk about three separate things here. I want to talk about the person, the place, and the purpose of this book. Let me first talk about the person writing the letter. Most scholars have accepted that this book was written by the Apostle Paul. And the reason why is if you look at Acts chapter 17, you realize that this is where in Thessalonica that Paul encountered some of the believers for the first time. In fact, it was through his preaching. And because this was on his second missionary journey, and this was somewhere from 50 AD to about 52 AD, most scholars believe that this was written around 51 AD. So we're talking about It's only about 20 years or less than 20 years since Jesus' death and resurrection that this letter was written to the people of Thessalonica. Now, with that in mind, let me talk about the place of this letter. It's important to understand Thessalonica and why this letter was so critical and so important and on the heart of Paul 
that I believe that we can see some comparisons, even though it's a complete different city to Hong Kong, there's some parallels why we need this in our city, why we need to hear this message and talk about this book in our generation right now where we are in Hong Kong. Let me first share a, a little bit about Thessalonica. Now, the part that we have to understand is that this was the largest city. If you look at the map, I don't know if we have a map here. If you look at the map, you will notice Jerusalem is on the right-hand side there. And the Antioch, that's where they were first called Christians there. And so Paul, on his second missionary journey, traveled all the way to Thessalonica. And you'll see it up there, Thessalonica. And this is, if you know your geography, some of us are not good at geography, but just so that if you do, do know it, and you'll probably know, if you don't know, then you know now that this is part of Greece, this whole area that you'll see there. And you'll see Crete and some of these other areas in the modern times. It was... It was the largest city in Macedonia, in that whole region. Now, the reason why this was such an important city was that because of the location. Because it was the location for economy, it was the location for politics, and it was the location for culture. That's the beautiful thing about cities. And I believe this is the reason why God is always doing something in this city, because that's where people are. It's not just the building. But there is some level of influence and there are strongholds in cities that the gospel can address. This is the reason that we see here, because it's a very economical or uh, economic, political, and also cultural center, that here is Paul that goes to Thessalonica. Now, some other things that you will understand about this. This was the main port city for the Roman government in that area. So once again, any port cities are very significant. Because once again, it helps the economy. This was also a top port city ranked among other cities like Corinth and Ephesus. Some of you know that Paul wrote to the people of Corinthian or Corinth, and he wrote to the people of Ephesus. So these are important cities during Paul's time. Also, if you look at the map again, you will notice that Thessalonica is a very well-connected city to the other cities around. It's easy to go from one place to another whether through sailing or boating or whatever the case may be, the roads were connected during that time. That's why for this particular reason, when you think about Thessalonica, it was well positioned to take the gospel and spread it throughout the whole region. That's why I say there's some similarities because I believe Hong Kong is strategically placed in this area to reach out to many of the other cities in Asia. Now, the thing that you have to understand is that the city was a city that worshipped Greek gods. That's why you will notice as we go over the book of 1 Thessalonians, there will be a lot of reference to, references to about purity. It will have a lot of references about other gods that we have to forsake. The whole process of discipleship, as I mentioned. And because they were worshipping these other gods, there were gods of fertility, there are gods that gave you success. So they would be worshiping all these other gods. And here is Paul trying to proclaim with boldness that Jesus Christ is the only king and the only God that deserves our worship. The third thing, the purpose of the letter, so that you understand who he's writing to and why what he's writing about is significant. So in order to understand what, what the purpose is, we have to go back to Acts chapter 17. 
So let's go back to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to get a glimpse of what is happening so that you will know why Paul wrote the things that he did, because this is the beginning of the gospel movement that happened in Thessalonica. So listen to what it says. Now when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love that phrase. They turned the world upside down. And then in verse 7 it says this, And Jason was received, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they have taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So this gives you a background of what's happening in Thessalonica. That he goes in, he preaches the gospel in the synagogue for three Saturdays, and as he's preaching the gospel message, it says your people actually come to know Jesus Christ through the power of the word. And as soon as people started finding out, especially the Jews, they were jealous. And as they were jealous, they wanted to get rid of Paul and Silas. So what did they do? They brought up forth a mob to bring the city in an uproar. And when they couldn't find Paul and Silas, and why? Because they knew about some of the things that were happening, so they escaped in the middle of the night. And you will see later that they ended up in Berea. And because of this, we see that the persecution starts in the city of Thessalonica. That's why I believe that Paul wrote this letter in this situation for three specific reasons. First of all, he wanted to encourage them. As they were going through persecution and suffering for their faith, Paul wanted to show his love and his concern for the new believers. And many of you know that once you become a new believer, it's like being a newborn child. That's why they call it born again. You need a lot of attention. You need to develop and grow. You need to be fed. You need to be strengthened. So Paul, after being there for some months, he had to leave because of the persecution. So what happened? He ended up writing this letter to encourage them, to remind them to faithfully trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, learning to depend on him even in the midst of suffering. The second thing that he does, and the reason why he writes this letter, not only to encourage them, but he writes this letter to exhort them. He wanted to challenge them to continue to grow in their faith, even though they're facing the difficult situations in their lives. Paul knew that discipleship was going to be so important to their walk with God. Because you're living in a city that's full of sin, you're living in a city where they are uh, in opposition and against Christianity. How in the world are you going to stay true to the faith? 
And that's why he challenges them. He exhorts them to remain faithful to the things that they know that are to be true. Their life of holiness that he calls them to was going to be a witness to those people around them. That's why he's saying, live your life for Christ. And you'll see this as we look into the text for even today. The third thing, and lastly, he writes this letter to enlighten them, to give them some insights. Because the believers were very confused because they didn't know when this Jesus that Paul preached about was going to come back. This Jesus that you crucified rose again from the dead, and he's going to come back. And now they were confused. When is he coming back? Because we're going through hardships. We're going through persecution. If he loves us, wouldn't he come back now and rescue us from some of the situation that we're facing right now? Also, some of the people that they loved passed away because of the persecution. Some of them were killed for their faith. And so now they're wondering, so what happens? Will Jesus come back? And if he comes back, what happens to these people who passed away? So all these questions that they had, because they were new believers, and so what Paul did was he addressed the issue of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. And we'll see this later on in chapter 2, chapter 3, and on. So this is the reason why we're covering 1 Thessalonians, because it's relevant for us. Because I believe these are the same things that we face in Hong Kong. There are so many different temptations and the things that the world pulls us through. Different gods, small g, different gods that tell us to worship them. The God of success, the God of money. Whatever it may be that we're being pulled, and that's why our relationship with Jesus Christ is not strong. So that message will come out. Another thing is that we have to grow in our discipleship in light of everything that we're facing. Some of you right now are going through some difficult times. And how you handle the situation in your life with the perspective that you need will really determine if you genuinely believe in the promises of God. And lastly, I pray that it will speak to us about temporary things, that it will not last, but only those things that are eternal. And that's why we call this series Eternity. So let me give us the one thing that I want to talk about specifically for this morning, and it's simply this. The life transformation from the gospel gives us a real demonstration of the gospel. So life transformation that can happen when you believe in the gospel will begin to then manifest itself as you demonstrate the gospel message in your life. In fact, if I can take it the other way, is that when we see elements of the gospel in your life, that means your life has genuinely been changed because of the gospel, because of Jesus. I share this because there are many of you who grew up in the church, and you're very good, especially being in Asia, following the rules. And the problem is your heart has not changed. Your mind has not been renewed. And so here you are in church looking all good, because you're an obedient person, you follow all the things, you don't miss a meeting, and everyone assumes that you're doing spiritually well, but inside you're riding away. And no one knows that. And that's why we, what we have to do is look for gospel transformation fruits to show that this person's genuinely, in their heart, is being transformed. Don't ever be fooled by action, because you can fake the action. You could be doing the action with wrong motivation, but genuine gospel fruits 
The demonstration of the gospel only comes when there's deep transformation of the heart. So that's what we want to address this morning. So let me talk about two things to remember about how life transformation from the gospel gives us this real demonstration of the gospel. The first thing is this, that we must powerfully experience the gospel. That every single one of us, we must powerfully experience the gospel. Will you just turn to somebody next to you and tell them the first point? Go ahead and do that for the next five seconds. Go ahead. We're going to go ahead and read the first five verses of 1 Thessalonians. And can I just encourage us, uh, one of the things that we do in our church is that after the sermon, this coming week, we're going to be studying it so you can delve deeper into it. I wish I had like five hours to just preach and just teach and share. But because of the limited time, I'm just going to cover some of the broader strokes, the bigger ideas. And then when you go into life group in your uh, Bible study time, you could dig deeper into a couple of these words or phrases, and hopefully that it will be an encouragement to you. So we're going to just read the first five verses here. And as we read these verses, I, I want us to capture what Paul is trying to say about the power of the gospel and how we, you and I, we have to experience this in a powerful way. Until we experience the gospel, it's just going to be a religious activity that we are participating in. So I pray that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, this morning will speak to every single one of us. Listen to what the Word of God says in verses 1 through 5. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians, of the church of Thessalonians, in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full connection, uh, conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Let's just pause here and try to dissect these five verses. As we start off this letter, we see the simple greeting from the team that ministered in Thessalonica. Now, we see Silvanus here. He's also known as Silas. And here's Timothy, who's also in this letter because he was sent later on after Silas and Paul left. Paul sent Timothy to minister to the people in Thessalonica. So starting from verse 2, we see Paul's heart of gratitude. This is the part that's really what you see more of his heart. This heart of gratitude and expression of praise because of these believers in Thessalonica. Why is this important? Because Paul ministered in Thessalonica because of persecution, he left. Now, anyone could look at that and say, oh, he chickened out. Oh, he just left us here. So what Paul wanted to communicate was that he had to keep on preaching the gospel to other people. And that's why he left. Not because he was scared. Not because he didn't want to go through persecution. But he had to go and preach the gospel. That's what some of the leaders in Thessalonica wanted to do. Paul, you go and keep on preaching the gospel. We have already received the gospel, and we're going to grow through this. And that's why he wanted to let them know, hey, I haven't forgotten about you. I care about you. I know you're going through suffering. I know you're going through some difficult times. And that's why he writes this letter. Now, the beautiful thing is this. Not only do you see his heart, 
But what he's expressing is every single time when I think about the situation, I just give praise and I'm so grateful for every single one of you. Now, this is very reminiscent to what Paul felt about the believers in Philippi. Do you remember that passage? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says this. Read the yellow section out loud with me. It says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So he says, every single time you come to mind, every single time I think of something and then, oh, I think about you. He said, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. I want to read it from the message translation because there's a phrase in there I think is really important. It says, every time you cross my mind, I break out into uh, acclamations of thanks to God, even acclamation of is a trigger to prayer. It's a trigger to prayer. I find myself praying for you with a glad heart. So here's my question. When was the last time you thought about somebody or God brought someone into your mind and your first response was to pray? Because if you're like me, a lot of times when we think about someone, the first thought is what? Frustration? Anger? Oh, that person is hopeless. Oh, not again. Why is he contacting me? Why is she trying to do Like, that's normally our first response. But Paul says every single time in remembrance of you, like something triggers my memory and I think about who you are, who you are in Christ, who you, what you mean to me, and then I express myself now in prayer. That's why I think prayer is so important. Prayer when we pray together. Prayer when you pray in your own closet, in your prayer closet, when you're praying to God. When you pray, it's no longer about you, but it's about what God is doing in that person's life. It's about what God wants to do in that situation. Many of us, when we think about our family, we think about our parents, we think about our siblings, we think about maybe even our friends, our colleagues, those that we care about. Maybe many of them do not know Jesus Christ. Every single time we think about them, sometimes we get anxious, we get worried. And guess what happens? The focus is more on us. When was the last time when you thought about a situation or thought about people in your life, the first reaction is, I'm going to pray for them. That's what Paul does. He prays. It triggers his memory to pray for them. You will notice here that experiencing the grace and the love of God, it always overflows in gratitude and prayer. There are a couple reasons why Paul gives thanks to God for the believers as he remembers them and thinks about them. Let me give you the specific reasons why He's praising God as he thinks about them in remembrance. The first thing is this, the work of faith. What Paul sees is God's powerful work of faith in their lives. That they genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation, and they have given their complete allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. And what Paul is saying is that when we see this work of faith in your life, it will always produce works. Now, can I just pause here and allude to us, you have to get this 
absolutely correct in terms of order. What Paul is saying, or shall I say what he's not trying to say, is that by working hard, you will have faith. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is that if you have faith, you will work hard. See, what we get wrong is that somehow from this side, we think to ourselves, if we work hard enough, if we're good enough, if we do enough things to appease God, that somehow he will accept us and he will love us. Where do we get this? Many of you operate with this kind of mindset. Why? Because your whole life and the world preaches on this side. You got to be good. You got to do all this stuff. You got to get the A. You got to be able to perform. You got to be able to be competent. And so your whole life is struggling to try to earn something, especially to grow in your faith. Now, I see this all the time when I talk to people. You're listening to their situation. You're listening to their struggle with their parents. You're listening to their struggle with their coworkers. You're listening to their struggles and why they're not growing their walk with God. And almost 100%, every single time, it goes back to this. And so here I am trying to preach the gospel to help them to understand you got the order wrong. Here you are trying to do all the stuff so that you can somehow obtain some level of worthiness from God so that he will love you, you'll be forgiven, or you will receive blessings. And what God is saying is that's completely a religious and a works-oriented mindset. The reason why we are motivated to work, to lay down our lives, and to serve him, and to do anything, is because we understand that Jesus Christ has given us eternal life. Can I get a good amen? He has already done the work. It is already finished. So there's nothing more you can do to add or nothing you can do to take it away. No matter how good you are or no matter what sin you have committed that seems atrocious, that you cannot take away God's love for you. Nothing can separate us from his love. Neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. There's nothing you add and nothing you can subtract from that love. So when you think about that, it humbles you. Because in my sinfulness, in my wickedness, in my fallenness and my frailty, that God still loves me. When you understand that to the deepest part of your core, of your heart, guess what happens? Not only will gratitude start welling up in your heart but you're going to be like god i want to love you i want to serve you i want to lay down my life so here i am counseling people and they're struggling to try to either obey or follow god or lay down their life and i'm just listening i i, I ask questions i try to listen to their response and it's amazing how many of them operate on this side This is the part that's hard. Many of the people that I talk to know this side, but the problem is they don't believe it. Are you with me? Does that make sense? They know this, but they don't believe it. Because when you understand this and it goes to the core of your heart, then that does not become a sacrifice. It's no sacrifice. 
You don't have to try to motivate yourself. You will be motivated because you realize that someone loves me this unconditionally who accepts me in this way in spite of who I am. This is the power of the gospel. This is what drives people to lay down their life for Jesus Christ. But here we are. We calculate. Oh, if I do this, then maybe I'm not going to do well in school. Or if I do this, then I'm not going to, I'm going to miss those opportunities at work. Then you don't have an understanding deeply of the gospel. Because if you understand this, you will lay down your life. You will obey him. You will follow him. Because you realize that there's not a single person in this world who loves you in this way. Your only other option is to go back to this mode and try to see if you could earn acceptance and love. And this is a pretty difficult life. Because you will never be good enough. You will never reach that mark. You will always fall short. That's why James chapter 2, verse 14, and also in verse 17 says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Listen to what the message translation says. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere if this, in this if you learn all the right words? But come on, say this with me. Never do anything. Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is what? Outrageous nonsense. So what he's saying is that you cannot just sit there and say, okay, yeah, I know I'm saved and God is good, but there's no action. There has to be a response because you understand the gospel. And to those of us who are trying to do all these things to earn something, you cannot earn anything. So not only is he remembering them because he sees their faith that is at work. Because they experience the gospel, they are willing to lay down their life, even in the midst of persecution. That is one of the clear signs that somebody has powerfully experienced the gospel is that they are putting themselves to work because this gospel, the faith that is now in them that they did not earn is motivating them. Here's the second thing, is the labor of love. A sign that a person is growing in their faith and a person who is really experiencing the gospel is that they stop living self-centeredly and they begin to live for others. I'm not talking about live for others, trying to please them to get what you want. Here, let, let me just say this. Please do not be fooled by nice people. We have a lot of nice people in our church, but don't be fooled by that. Some of you are like, what is he trying to say? Do we want bad people, mean people, rude people? No, listen to me carefully. I meet so many nice people, and it's really easy to say, oh, what a nice person. It almost seems as if they're so compassionate and altruistic and they do things almost selflessly. But I want you to pause for a moment and take one step deeper. The many people who are very nice, 
One of the things I've been observing as I've been counseling people over and over again is that a lot of times people are nice because they're very self-centered. Now, that might seem very oxymoronic, but let me explain. When people are nice to somebody, you could be motivated to get something in return. So think about that. If that person can give you a job, if that person can open a door for you, it is so easy to love them because you're getting something in return. Let me put it from a different angle so that you could be thoroughly convinced. Some people are nice because they are afraid of being alone. So they are so nice because they want people around them. So therefore, it's no longer genuinely being nice because of the love of Christ. It's they're genuinely nice or they're trying to be genuinely nice because they want something which is surrounded by people. They want to have friends. In the same way, somebody can be nice because they don't want to be rejected. They hate the feeling of being rejected. So they're nice to everybody so that everyone can accept them. So no longer is it a genuine love that flows out of love for Christ, but it really comes down to their love for themselves. That is not the kind of love that Paul is identifying here. What he says, it is the labor of love that is motivated by the Holy Spirit. Because think about it, it is not easy to love unlovable people. Only God who fills us can do that. That's why in the NIV it says, prompted, your labor prompted by love. You experience love, that's why you love. If you have not experienced the gospel of being loved, accepted, and forgiven, anytime you try to do that, you're trying to earn something. You're trying to get something. It's self-centered. But when you love people, when they can do nothing in return, when you love people who are very unlovable and they're not going to give you any status or any lifting up of who you are, that is love that is prompted by the love that you've experienced from God. Here's the third thing. He talks about the work of faith, the labor of love, and then he talks about the steadfastness of hope. Now, what Paul is trying to remind the believer is that we're able to endure many difficult things in our lives if we have genuine hope in Jesus Christ that one day he will return. This is what we were trying to address earlier as one of the themes. What Paul is saying is that if your hope comes from anything else except for Jesus Christ, then that is not the kind of hope that's going to endure or it's going to help you endure some of the difficult things. So think about this. Some of us, our hope is in everything but Jesus Christ. So think about when you, last time you got heartbroken. When was the last time you got disappointed in your life? A lot of times, if you dissect it and reflect and try to connect the dots, you realize that your hope was based on a circumstance. Your hope was based on a person. Your hope was based on certain things that will come about. That's why when those things don't happen or that person does something to you, guess what? You get shattered. You get devastated. To me, that is a clear sign that your hope is not on Jesus Christ. It is based on what you do, what you will receive, what will you have. Just think about the most recent disappointment in your life. And it will tell you, it will reveal to you what you put your hope in. There is no way that you and I can go through difficult things in our lives if our hope is based on a circumstance. 
it's not going to work. If your hope is in a person, they might be able to help you, but once again, at the end of the day, they will disappoint you. If your hope is on things that you might be able to obtain, what happens when you don't get it? You get disappointed, disillusioned. It's it's no different for a pre-Christian or a Christian. Think about this. At least the world is understandable because they don't know Jesus Christ. But for a Christian in the church, if they respond the same way that the world does, it's a lot of revealing. That here we are to say that we have the gospel message and still our minds are not renewed where we are not putting our hope and full trust in Jesus Christ. The hope that, has to be, the hope that we have has to be different. It has to be on Jesus. Look at some of these different translations of that verse. Listen to what it says. The enduring hope you have because of Jesus Christ, right? So the Lord Jesus Christ. Your patience of hope in following our master, Jesus Christ. Your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Living Bible says, steady looking forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the voice translation. Listen to what it says. Your unfailing, unwavering, unending hope. Come on, will you say these words with me? Let's say it together. Unfailing, unwavering, unending hope in our Lord Jesus. The anointed one before God our Father have put you consistently at the forefront of our thoughts. So the three things, faith, love, and hope are the true evidences of somebody who has trusted in Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation, and that they are growing in the gospel. Are you more loving because of Jesus than you were before? Do you have more hope than ever before, before you put your trust in Jesus? But now that you have, this hope is growing. Do you have more faith that causes you to act in obedience than ever before? These are the three evidences that we should be looking for in a person's life if they're growing as a disciple. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how many Bible passages they read. It doesn't matter how many consistent days of soap that they do. What I'm looking for is these three things. Have they responded in faith or are they trusting in themselves? Do they love people that are unlovable because no one can love them? Only God, through Christ, can we love someone like that. And do we have a hope that is enduring, that's patient, that's lasting, that's looking forward, that no matter what happens in our lives, that hope will not erode away because it is firmly rooted in the promise that Jesus Christ will one day come back and we will spend the rest of eternity with him. Do we have this? These three areas. This is what you should be looking for in your life as well as others. Faith, love, and hope. How about us this morning? Can you describe or even explain to others about your experience with the gospel? That's why sometimes I love to just hear people like, how did you experience the gospel? How did you come to know Jesus Christ? How is that now playing out in your life in this situation that you're just describing to me? You have the same level of faith that you did a year ago. Is there obedience? Is there love? Is there hope in your life? Is the gospel real to you? 
We must powerfully experience the gospel. The second point is a little bit shorter. Listen to this. We must not only powerfully experience the gospel, and here's, I think, something that Paul makes it very clear about this true transformation because of the gospel. That we must powerfully exemplify the gospel. See, if you've experienced it, you will be able to now exemplify it, be an example of this gospel. The gospel has such a powerful effect on these Thessalonians because their lives were drastically transformed. Remember, we read that passage in Acts 17, their lives were flipped upside down. It was completely changed. And that's what happens when the gospel comes in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction that we read in verse 5. Now we're going to look and see how the gospel was exemplified by these disciples. And there's two things that we will see in the rest of this passage, starting from verse 6 all the way to verse 10. The first thing is this, how they exemplify the gospel, that they actually encountered this. The first thing is they imitated Jesus. Everyone say they imitated Jesus. Let's read verse 6 through 7, and you'll see this. It says this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, I want you to notice something here. The Thessalonians became more like the people that they had an impact on which was Paul and Silas, and ultimately Jesus Christ. Now, this is what happens when you first start following Jesus Christ. We start imitating those people who had an impact on us. I see this all the time. And one of the best places to see it is prayer. Sometimes when we're all closing our eyes, and we're in a prayer gathering, and then someone prays, and you, for sure you think it's somebody else. You know what I'm talking about? like the same language, the same lingo, and things like that, and you realize, oh, that person has been discipled by, or that person is spending time with somebody else. Now, the reason why I share this is because I'm not saying that it's wrong. I think it's fine, because even here, they were imitating Paul and Silas in their faith. And, but the point that I want to make here is that Paul and Silas had such an impact on the Thessalonians' lives that they were saying that we are imitating these people. Now, this is biblical because this is exactly what Apostle Paul said to the people of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, Be what? Come on, say this. Imitators of me as I am of Christ. Other translations, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The voice translation says, so imitate me, watch my ways, follow my example, just as I, too, always seek to imitate the anointed one. But here's the thing. If you end up just following people for the rest of your life, then you miss the point. When you start off in your Christian journey, there's nothing wrong with imitating and following people who are ahead of you. What Paul is mentioning is that ultimately, we have, as we continue to grow, we have to start imitating whom? Come on, everyone say it. Jesus. Some of you who are just starting off your Christian journey, it's good that you imitate those mentors or those leaders or those disciples because you're just learning, and a lot of times it's just mimicking or copying. But you have to start internalizing and realize the ultimate goal is not to follow people, but to follow whom? Jesus. 
That's why Paul commends them for being imitators of not only them, but Jesus. So Thessalonians' growth, in spite of the tremendous suffering and the trials, what it comes down to is becoming more like Jesus will help you in this process. Can I just ask you? Just go ahead and look to the person on your left and right. Just go ahead and just, don't say anything, just look at them. Are they looking more like Jesus? Somebody like, no way. <laughs> they have an eye booger they, they didn't take out. and They're not looking like Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> Are you becoming more like Jesus that anyone who spends time with you, they don't even have to read the Bible. They will know the heart of Jesus. The beautiful thing about the Thessalonians is as they were suffering, listen to this, this is important. As they were suffering, people around them began to hear about their faith. People throughout Macedonia, remember we saw that map, all throughout Macedonia, even in Corinth and Ephesus and some of these other places, they started to hear about the Thessalonians' faith. And this is such a powerful thought, is that what they were going through in the midst of suffering, they were still able to rejoice. They were still trying to become more like Jesus Christ because their hope was in Jesus. Their love was founded in, rooted in Jesus. And even their faith and obedience to God was rooted because of Jesus. And because of that, their testimony began to spread and people started talking about them. When was the last time, can I just ask you this? When was the last time people actually started talking about you because of your incredible faith? Did you hear about that person? Like, wow, even against so many opposition from family and other people, they trusted in God and they stepped out. Did you hear about that? Did you hear about that person who just sacrificially gave so that this person can be blessed? Did you hear about that? Did you hear about that person who actually prayed and miracles started happening? Did you hear about that person? Because if we're honest here, many of us, what we hear is, did you hear about that person? I know he's such a jerk, isn't he? Oh, my Lord. Did you hear about her? She is such an annoying person in the WhatsApp group chat. Did you hear about that guy? See, part of the sanctification and becoming more like Jesus Christ is you become actually attractive. Now, I'm not going to ask you to look at the person on your left and right. You could wear all the fancy makeup, all the fancy clothes. You could have all the right bags. You could have all the right watches. You could have all the right things. But I'm telling you right now that it's putting lipstick on a pig. To those of us who might not feel like you're pretty good looking, like, why don't I have that kind of nose? Why are my eyes this way? And, you know, why am I not taller? And all this kind of stuff. You wonder why. Maybe this is why no one likes me. Maybe this is why I can't get a girlfriend or a boyfriend. I'm going to tell you this. You become more like Jesus, you will become strangely, I put that word in there, strangely attractive. I have seen, no one in our church, of course, it's just out there. I have seen 
So the, some of the most, I'm, I'm, we're just trying to, you know, let, let's just be real here. We're just talking about in the worldly standards or I guess a human nature standard. I have seen some of the guys who look like beasts. I mean, we're talking, not beast mode, but they're just like, you know, and they get married. And I'm like, how? <laughs> Until I get to know that guy, and I'm like, I got it. Because this guy is chasing after the heart of God. You can't be in the presence of God without letting some of that glory rub off on you. And I've seen some brothers, I'm just like, dude, man, you're, like, you're, you're an eligible candidate, you know? You know, eligible. And then th- th- there's a girl who's kind of insecure and all this stuff, but, but then I probe a little deeper and I realize, oh, they reflect more of the heart of Jesus in love and patience. So I'm like, got it. I'm sharing this because it's not a dating seminar, but I'm just sharing. What we forget is that when we become more like Jesus Christ, we become strangely attractive, not just to the opposite sex, listen to me carefully, but to the world. Something is different about you. I cannot explain it. When there's finals and everyone's stressing out, there's a piece that I cannot explain where it comes from. At work, even though the boss is treating us this way, there's something about you that you still have like a servant's heart. I, I don't even know where this comes from. I, something strangely attractive about this. That's why the word was spreading about these Thessalonians, because in the midst of difficulties and hardships, they were still rejoicing, they were still loving, they were still hoping, they were still having faith and obeying. Not only did they imitate Jesus, the second thing and last thing is this, they influenced others. See, when you really have this powerful encounter with Jesus Christ and the gospel, you're going to start exemplifying not only Christ and the gospel, but I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to have influence. Let's look at verse 8 through 10. This is what the word of God says. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there is something powerful about a transformed life because people start talking about you, as I mentioned. In verse 8 specifically, you see the word sounded forth. You see that word, that phrase? It is translated as rang out or reverberated. Literally, your transformed life reverberated, hello, rippled out, come on now, it rippled out from where you are to your family, to your workplace, to your school, and places around you. In fact, this word, I was thinking about what's a good analogy of this word, because this word is a reverberating, ring out, amplify, those are all different translations of this word, and then I got this idea. One thing I realized about Hong Kong apartments is that the walls are thick. You guys know what I'm talking about? 
It's really thick. So you could have the most fastest internet. You could have the latest, you know, router. But you cannot penetrate through Hong Kong walls. So what do you need? Come on. This is the geeks. You guys come alive. What do you need? <laughs> you need a sequencer, right? A delay thing where you actually, from here, it goes to this particular router, and then it will amplify it to other areas. We have it in our house. I know many of you have it, because you can stick it right in the middle, but still it won't go through some of the walls. So the sequencer or this thing that amplifies the Wi-Fi is the exact same word. It's here's a signal that's coming out, but it's not able to reach that far. So as they live their lives for Jesus Christ through this encounter with this gospel, it is now being amplified as how they live because now people are hearing about it. So guess what? As people are hearing about it, they're now they're sharing with other people. And so their influence, which was only here, maybe around here, now it's being amplified again and again. That's what Paul is trying to say. What he's saying is that the way you live your life is so far different from the rest of the world that it is being amplified and is reverberating across all of Asia and Asia Minor at this time. That's why I love 1 Thessalonians, that verse 8 translated in the message translation. It says this, the word has gotten out. Come on, say this yellow part with me. Your lies are echoing the master's word. It's echoing out. Not only in the provinces, but what? All over the place. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You're the message. The message that is being talked about is that there's a change of allegiance. That's why verse 9, it says the power of the gospel turn, it helps us to turn from idols to serve the living and true God. It is implied that many of these believers were non-Jews or Gentiles. Why? Because during that time, they will be worshiping all these other gods, and the Jewish Christians knew that only Yahweh can be worshipped. So to turn away from these gods to the true and living God, many of these people were pagans before they came to know Jesus. They didn't have a Jewish upbringing. They were literally pagans. They had no concept of God. They had no concept of Abraham. They had no concept of the covenant. They were completely atheists, or they were just pan-atheists, or pan-worshippers of God. All different types of God. The contrast is clear. Yahweh is the true and living God, and these idols were false and lifeless God that cannot fully satisfy. Listen to what it says in Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8. It talks about, the psalmist is talking about all these gods and idols that we worship. He says this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat wrote, those who make them become what? Like them. So do all who trust in them. This is powerful. Listen to me carefully. The only way you can exemplify the gospel is when you are saturated in the gospel. You speak it. You think it. You live it. You can actually hear other people talking and you're like, oh, oh that's not very gospel centered. Not to be judgmental, but you're able to now recognize it. 
Even when you're by yourself and you have all these negative thoughts that come from Satan, you're able to catch yourself because that is not the gospel. And that is why many of us, when we are going through these struggles and when we are facing hardships, it is so easy to be anti-Jesus and anti-gospel. Oh, I didn't do well in school, so now you have to try to, try to fix it. Or something's going on at work and somehow you feel like you're the savior. Same way with home, as if you have to save your family. That is so anti-Jesus. You're not going to save anybody. We already have a Savior. So it's amazing when you listen to what people say. Watch the decisions they make. You'll realize if they really genuinely understand the gospel. Did you, did we as a church, do we turn away from these idols to the living and true God? You can only tell by how we live our lives. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You and I, we're going to fail constantly. But do we catch ourselves when somebody rebukes us or show us, are we humble enough to say, you're right, I've gone in my own direction. I've been worshiping these gods instead of the true and living God. This is the reason why, and I'm going to say this because I don't know if this is something that some of you need to hear, but let me just say this. I would always have a question when someone says they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they don't want to get baptized. If that any of you in this room, listen to me carefully. I do understand your parents' situation. I do understand a little bit of you struggling to understand it more deeply, but maybe you're not ready yet. I, I get all that. But somewhere down the line, this gospel, this Jesus Christ, has to be so good and so real and so true to you that you're willing to make a public confession of this faith that God is working in your life. For whatever reason, if you don't want to do that, then I would question if you've turned away from worshiping other gods to the true and living God. That's why baptism is such a vital part to your spiritual journey. I've yet to see people grow in their faith if, if they can't even take the first step of publicly declaring their faith. You're going to be a secret Christian. And that is an oxymoronic statement because just by living by faith, it's actually a public thing. Now, barring persecution and underground churches and all these other people, I get that. But somewhere deep inside, if you genuinely experience the gospel, you cannot contain it. Come on, can I get a good amen? You will feel it. You will see it. You will be able to describe it because it changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It changes your mindset. It changes your desires. It changes your future. It changes the things that you are pursuing after. That is why the power of the gospel can transform every single person who will submit themselves to King Jesus and give their allegiance to him and him alone. It's not just forsaking the idols but they were trusting and hoping in the second return. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue in this book. That's why I think the power of the gospel is clearly established in this first 10 verses. And this is something that we need to understand, that in our sinfulness and in our weaknesses and in all our shortcomings, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But Jesus Christ, knowing that he came in obedience to the Father, he came into this world, lived a perfect life that you and I could not live. And then he died on the cross willingly for sinful people like you and I so that we can have eternal life. 
That is part of or the, the heart of the gospel as we see God from the beginning of time all the way through redemption and even restoration. We see this arc of God being in the center of all things, working in your life so that you will get to a point where you will deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. To those of you who are believers, can I just challenge you? What he's doing right now in your life, he's trying to humble you. He's trying to break you so that no longer will you be the captain of your own ship or your own boat or your own car, but God, you're allowing him to rule. Why? Because he's King Jesus. And when he's King Jesus, there's no other kings around him. We, we submit ourselves. We give our allegiance because we are citizens of heaven. Anything and everything will pale in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ and embracing him. That's why the one thing, once again, is that life transformation from the gospel gives a real demonstration of the gospel. I want to close by giving just three things for us to think about. And I pray that as we're fasting, as we're going through this, and some of you who are going through some difficult times, you'll keep these in mind and follow through in obedience. The first thing is this. Own your spiritual growth. Stop trying to blame other people. Blame your circumstance. You got to own it. You are where you are right now spiritually because you have failed to take responsibility. You have made excuses. Oh, I didn't have this or that person wasn't in my life. Or Own it. This is my walk with God. My walk with Jesus. And I am where I am because of decisions that I made, because the hardness of my heart, because I forgot about the gospel and I become apathetic. You own it. Stop blaming your leaders. Stop blaming the church. Stop blaming other people. You are where you are because of the things that you have decided to do or not do. Because as soon as you own it, all the excuses go away. And all you see is the beauty of Jesus and realize here he is knocking at the door, waiting for you to open that door. And let him come in. The king of glory. If you're serious about growing, with this perspective of eternity, you got to own your spiritual life. If you're not growing, own it and say, God, I haven't even touched your word for a long time. I haven't even prayed to you for a long time. I've been living in sin. This addiction, it has overpowered me. I haven't trusted in you. I've been working, trying to do all this stuff to earn your favor. That's not the gospel. That's why Christianity has become burdensome. That's why serving and doing things is difficult. Stop making excuses. Own your spiritual growth and say, I'm going to grow. I'm going to put the time. I'm going to put the energy. I'm gonna, Lord, I can't do this on my own, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for faith to come and help me to grow spiritually. And I believe he will answer that prayer. Own it. Own your spiritual growth. The second thing is this. Observe your reactions and your emotions. What I mean by that is oftentimes when you react to different situations or different people or when you start feeling different things it is not because of those things listen that means that's already inside you and those things just help it to come out so observe why am i angry why do i have that kind of feeling towards that person because from that as you observe god might expose your bitter spirit 
there is, to this day, I haven't seen any person grow spiritually or fall in love with Jesus if there's bitterness in your life. I guarantee you. Bitterness is, is, is a root that produces really bad fruit. Depression, bitterness, it, it, it produces just insecurities. So watch your reaction. Observe your reactions. Observe your emotions. Because as soon as you start seeing, oh, wait, wait a minute. Why am I feeling this? Oh, why am I thinking this? That will help you to tap into what's going on in here. And I pray that you will turn to Jesus in repentance and take ownership of your growth and say, God, I need you. If you're not very aware, self-aware, have a friend who can tell you, dude, man, like, is that really necessary? Or like, dude, that's really messed up. That will help us. The third and last thing is this. Offer your testimony as proof. Now, I, I get it. Because I think some of us don't really see the change. And we're like, oh, I didn't really have that kind of powerful encounter. You know, turn the world upside down and all this kind of stuff. You're just like kind of muted in your testimony. I'm going to say this. They are not looking for a perfect transformation story. In fact, the more perfect you appear, the more displeasing your life is. How many of you guys like the number one kid in your school? No one likes that person. How many of you like that person at work that the boss always likes and he's kissing up to the boss? No one likes that person. You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of us, we think that, oh, if I'm perfect, then people... No, it's actually the opposite. What people like is this genuine, authentic person who's still trying to understand who God is, trying to love Jesus as best as they can, even though it's flawed at times. But the thing is that they're talking about the greatness of who God is. Amen? It's not about you. Stop making yourself so great because you're not that great. If we're really humble and honest, we're not that great. But Jesus is. Amen? God's love is. God's patience. God's forgiveness. That's great. So the more you can actually share about who Jesus is and less of you and the work that he's doing inside you but it's his work that's working inside you, his spirit working inside you I'm going to tell you right now you will become strangely attractive they'll be like huh who is this Jesus so your transformed life as slow as it may be becomes a proof of this gospel that it could change you talk about Jesus more offer your testimony of God's work in you. Still at work. It's a work in progress. But God is working. And it's because of Jesus. And your life will never be the same. Oh, I long and I pray for the day when our church will be filled with people who are so gospel fluid that not only do you speak it, but you can catch it in yourself, in others, in situations that everything will be turned back to Jesus and say, Jesus, it's all about you, what you have done, the finished work on the cross. So there's nothing that I could do to boast. That's why even though it doesn't seem like it's even possible, even though it doesn't seem like it's feasible, but God, you're greater, you're stronger, you're mightier. Stop focusing on yourself. Stop making it about you and start living for Jesus in obedience to him. And I'm going to tell you right now, you will become a reverberating sound that will ring out 
like a Wi-Fi signal that will be amplified over and over again to reach nations. That's what I'm hoping that our church will become more and more every single week, every single day, that we will be able to declare the greatness of our God because of who He is, not because of who we are. Let us have this eternity mindset. Let us grow in this. Let us grow in our love for Jesus. Let us grow in our love for people, not because we're self-centered to get something out of them, but to love them because God has first loved us. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.